0: What happens to the children orphaned by COVID-19 or overdose once the immediate crisis passes? How can communities respond to prevent or lessen the crises? What tools can families and helping people access? No one in my varied career had a more comprehensive, sensible approach to crisis management than Sarah Cloud. Sarah is a force of nature. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two legged cisgender old white man of privilege. Who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little? We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. <music> Sarah Cloud received a Master's of Social Work from Boston College in 1996, a Master's of Business Administration in 2018. During her career, Sarah has been recognized for her leadership through awards for improving access to treatment for Latino and Brazilian communities, suicide prevention for elders, the opioid epidemic and jail diversion, she has specialized in developing innovative programs, healthcare integration, and interagency partnerships, and has lectured on those topics at national conferences. Sarah serves as a board member for the Boston Bulldog Running Club, a wellness community for people in recovery affected by addiction and treatment providers. PCO HOPE drop-in centers providing safe gateway to substance use information, resources, support, and hope for individuals and their loved ones. And to the Moon and Back, a nonprofit dedicated to providing advocacy, education, and support to caregivers of children born substance exposed. Sarah has been the Director of Social Work at Beth Israel Leahy Health Plymouth since 2015, and published author of children's books on grief and loss related to the opioid epidemic. Sarah and I worked together at Advocates, Inc. Her husband, Mike Schmidt, is my hearing aid specialist. Recently, Mike told me that Sarah wrote a series of books for children surviving losing a parent to a drug overdose. I jumped at the chance to reconnect with Sarah and hear her story since we stopped working together. Thanks to Joey Van Luen, who creates the amazing music for my podcast, and Kayla Nelson, who serves as my web social media coach and produces the video trailers for my podcast. You transform my podcast from good to great. Let's listen to my conversation with Sarah Cloud. Cloud, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be talking to you completely selfishly because I haven't seen you in so long. One of my top three pleasures of working at Advocates, Inc. was working with you. I felt like you were brilliant. You were courageous and your working, trying to deliver for the people we served and you really you put yourself out there and and you were brave that's what i think
1: that's, i have to say that's probably one of the greatest compliments i've ever received and it especially means a lot to me coming from you danny
0: oh thank you it's
1: very nice to reconnect
0: yes good good so um so, when was the first time you realized that health was fragile?
1: That's a really great question. I early on, and and certainly in my career, I realized that health was very fragile, and I think it really hit home once it was my own health in question, and at a very young age. I think considered a young age of 38, being diagnosed with breast cancer was really completely out of the blue, unexpected, very healthy, felt really great. And so I think that was a pretty significant shock. And really, I really paused quite a bit, both in terms of my health and my lifestyle, but also in terms of thinking about my family and my young daughters that I had Mm -hmm. and, and relationships. And it really had me reassess in a very painful and very difficult way what my life was about and where I was heading and is it is it the right direction
2: yeah yeah
1: very difficult time but very 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 grateful yeah uh, for that diagnosis and for that kind of second chance at reevaluating my life and I made some pretty significant changes as a result
0: thank you so when when we worked together, what I remember the most was the crisis management work that you did. Recognizing that people had crises wherever they were living, that it did not happen conveniently um, by any means. And so often the the entry into receiving professional help was so critical and so often dysfunctional like a, the police who had no training
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: and i i just thought that the work you did was really inspiring can you tell us a little bit about that. What are the lessons you think other people could learn from that experience? You did not birth that program whole. It seemed like you had an idea and it was iterative. You just built based on need. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I'd love to talk about that and think about that uh, a little bit. I come from the premise that crisis is opportunity. And it's also a very painful time, usually in people's lives, very confusing and really difficult to know where to turn to, whether it's the individual's experiencing the crisis themselves or family members. And family members and loved ones are just so important part of the process and the journey and in crisis intervention and healing that it's incredibly important to loop them in and to have them be part of the solution. And I think everybody ultimately has the skills and the resources and the idea of what they want from their own life, as opposed to a professional with all my years of schooling and my degrees and my licenses. I'm not the expert on their life. They are the expert on their life. And I think really approaching it from where they're at in the moment, both physically, ideally, it'd be great to provide as much of the crisis intervention in the community, in the natural settings outside of the artificial environment of the emergency room. But there are times where the emergency room is needed for medical care, for medical intervention assessment. It's also needed for safety uh, and containment and to hit pause a little bit and be able to reassess and figure out what's the best and and the safest plan. So I think coming from the perspective that the individual and the family knows what's really needed and what's best and really listening to them. figure that out as opposed to me, me as a professional imposing my goals or my thoughts about what their life should look like or what the next steps would be is really working collaboratively with the individual.
0: So how did it start? So you started with that as a foundation and and by the time I met you and started working with you, it was pretty mature. It evolved and got more mature over the years but mm-hmm. it was a full blown, you had built relationships with the community, you had figured out how to pay for it, while well, some of it mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so that it was a, a viable business, which is important yeah. to provide that. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think it happened organically and slowly over time, as you mentioned, and you came in at a certain entry point in which we started working together where it had progressed, but I think it was really all about relationships, just as I spoke about the relationships with and the joining with the individual in crisis and their family members, but I also think there's a formal and informal support system and resources around them, and I think schools very much played a very significant part of that in terms of their role in the the lives of the young young children and, and adolescents and the family unit itself. There's so many different, I think, entry points and
2: collaborations
1: that were possible that it just started making all of those connections. I think it really is um, about connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. These dots are, are out there and the more we can you know, link them together, work Together to help navigate the system for its for its you know for its strengths and weaknesses there, there is a system and how do we can best work together individuals in crisis in particular and their family members navigate what's available to them is really what I view as our, our role
0: mm-hmm. as providers. I was thinking that when I entered the picture maybe our first conversations about it you can correct me my i'm not known for the quality of my memories but but i'm thinking that some of the first conversations we had is how you were recognizing success in the programs and how to measure that so that the measurement didn't break the bank so you know that the measurement was possible and informative to you And I recall we had to learn, we tried, there was some stuff that I can't remember exactly that was prescribed because Mm -hmm. of funding that didn't necessarily inform us that much. So it was like trying to do what was required to keep the funding going, but then also figure out a dashboard that you could use to help you make decisions about what to do next and where to put your resources in which relationships to, do you remember more about that than I do?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You remember that much. I'm racking my, my storage right now. And, but yes, I remember all of kind of those quality measures that were really important, but you're right. They didn't do a whole lot to really inform program decisions in terms of development. And I think ultimately we always went back to who's on the front lines Out in the community, whether that be the schools, whether that be police responding to protective services through the elder organizations, Mm -hmm. all of these partners, collaborators that we have on the front line that see crises as they're beginning to occur so that we can work together to intervene early in the cycle before it becomes something that's full blown or has some some outcomes that aren't what we had wanted. Those reasons getting out there
0: so really in a way the crisis management business is about getting ahead of the crisis so that what might seem like a crisis to an individual doesn't become a crisis for the community yeah okay so the reason that we reconnected here was the work that you're doing with children who are in the throes of trying to manage grief and crises in their lives around the opioid epidemic.
2: Yeah. And
0: so can you tell us a little bit about how that became a focus for you?
1: Certainly. When I was leaving advocates to come work here in the Plymouth County area six years ago, one of my colleagues said to me, they have a really significant opioid use disorder kind of crisis down on the South shore, down in the Plymouth area right now. What are your thoughts? What do you, you know, how are you going to handle that? What are you going to do? What's your plan? And the answer was, I'm not entirely certain. I'm aware of that it's an issue. I very much look forward to getting involved in the community, rolling up my sleeves, hearing what, what their per, you know, perception of the problem is, what their perception is, what's missing, what can we do to help fill some of those gaps? And I immediately became really immersed. Um, in the substance use field and recovery community down here on the South Shore. And again, connecting all of those dots began to grow and plant seeds in different pockets. And they have all, I think, finally come together and are all connected at this point. So we pretty quickly got called to the chief of police, um, Chief Poteri, here back in 2015. He was acknowledging what a problem of and how many lives are being lost, the opiate epidemic, young lives usually. And he wanted to replicate something that was happening down with on the on the Cape with uh, Galsnold and I think the Falmouth Falmouth Police in particular, in which recovery navigators were going out the next day after a non fatal overdose and engaging both the individual who's in active use and struggling, but also their family members. And so we quickly started doing that with tremendous success in collaboration. December first, two thousand fifteen, in the town of Plymouth. And when we started doing that in our first year, 80% of the folks that we went and visited following an over were connected to treatment from their home, from their natural setting. Wow. So you don't have that. We do, when somebody has an overdose and they receive Narcan, usually in the community, they're transported to the closest emergency room. We have staff, we have recovery navigators and recovery coaches and social workers that really work hard to to engage the person right then and there during the medical treatment process and link them to treatment. But a lot of people didn't come in looking for treatment. They didn't come in voluntarily. They had a medical emergency and came and woke up probably here in our emergency room. And I think that's scary. I think it's embarrassing. It's probably frightening. There's a whole host of Mm-hmm. You know, not so positive feelings that go along with it. And once they get back out to the community, I think they get a little bit of chance to breathe, to think they don't feel as trapped any longer. And so let's offer again, so that would be our second offer of of, of treatment and connection mm-hmm. and support. And they're in the, in the comfort of their home. And I think it was just really well received, particularly the work with the families, because usually we don't have access in the emergency room to families. And they're really important because they're all going through, they're all living with the disease yeah. themselves. Yeah. Person. And the model was so successful that we expanded it and we brought the entire county, all 27 police departments and 28, if we can include Bridgewater State University, which we do and are all doing the same exact model at this mm-hmm. point, follow up. And so I think ultimately our goal was to save lives and to do so through partnerships, both with the individuals in active use, the recovery community, their family and mm-hmm. the first bonders, which are police. And at one point, we, we dropped, Plymouth County dropped by 26% per DPH numbers in our fatal overdoses, where the rest of the state, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, either remained steady or increased by
2: 4%.
0: Now a word about our sponsor, Bridge. Use a bridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. And so then how did you, how did the focus on the kids come up?
1: So we began working. That grew into collaborations with the district attorney's office here in Plymouth County. They do a lot of work with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Events. They do a lot of work with Handle With Care. So Working with the school system to say, if little Johnny's in today, there was something that kind of difficult that went down at his house last night. B base, give him some extra resources. They didn't necessarily get into detail what's going on, but just he's had a hard time to be expected. And then they also launched this drug endangered children's initiative. Okay. So, So all of these things coming together became really obvious in the work that I was doing with all of these different groups and all these different partners was that there is no books for elementary school, latency age children that existed. And I remember the final moment, because I've been looking for a couple of years at that point. My final moment where I decided to take action was I was sitting at the sheriff's department waiting for a task force meeting. And I was sitting there with Joanne Peterson. She is the founder of Learn to Cope. Okay, And a really amazing woman. And I asked her if she was aware of any books for children who've lost a parent to the epidemic. And she said, no, and if Joanne Peterson doesn't know if it exists, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's where I decided that I was going to go ahead. and.
0: So you yeah. gravitated to the vacuum.
1: Yep, as I usually do. And there was a need. And I, whether it wanted to be filled or not, I was going to do my best
0: yeah.
1: at doing it. And, and from there, I started the Mama Paca Children's Book Series mm-hmm. in- The book is based on this main character of an alpaca. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: The alpaca is actually a memory animal. So it's made of the clothing of the deceased parents. So it brings some comfort, familiarity, symbolizes having the parent close to you. And this alpaca, this memory animal is the main character in the series. And so the first one is called Mama Paca, Uh, My heart won't let you go. And it's about a little girl who tells her story about what it was like to see her mom get sick, all the things that she did to try to get better. And ultimately, she fought hard and courageously with her battle to the disease of addiction. And she goes to live with her grandparents, which I think is so common. And her grandparents tell her lots of stories about her mom, why she was named the name Chosen. She talks, they talk about the day she was born, how she was dressed coming home from the hospital, how important it was for her mom. Um, you know, when she was home from treatment, her she was absolutely the happiest when she was able to be with her daughter. It really talks a lot about how it wasn't her fault, it's the little girl's fault, because I think that's a common theme of as mm-hmm. the child feels like they could have done something differently, or
2: yeah.
1: somehow they have some responsibility for this. Yeah. Um, and so really just a celebration of. Her mom, uh, mm-hmm. both a parent but and as a person. And ultimately what times uh, the grandparents get sad too, which we think is a really healthy thing. We really encourage adults to express emotion. Yeah. Not to try to hide it, but I think it's really important to express emotion and sadness and to grieve and to have children see that. And you know, when the, the, the grandparents get sad, she shares the mama paca, the alpaca memory animal with them as
2: well.
0: To comfort them. So it's a series, and mm-hmm. you did send me a link that I'll put on the show notes for uh, people to be able to uh, find and purchase um, those books. I actually have got the first, what's this one? The second one I have here Papa pa- Pack, Kind Hearted Warrior. Anyway, so what haven't we talked about that we should be?
1: <laughs> That's a really great question. I just to tell you a little bit about Papa Paka, kind-hearted warrior. Mm-hmm. So that I wrote that a little differently than the first one. The second one, Papa Paca, is in honor and memory of a friend of mine. His name is Sean Staunton. He was a Boston Bulldog Running Club member. He really struggled quite a bit with his recovery and with sobriety until he actually met Coach. Mike Ferullo, the Boston Bulldog. So Mike is in long-term recovery, running and wellness really saved his life. And so he gives back, he goes around to sober houses, other programs and things like that. And recruits folks, engages them to start in wellness practices. And that could be walking and it could be running, but he matched. So Sean met coach as he's going out to all the sober programs and it clicked and John's a really big guy, and but he started running. Ultimately, he ran marathons, mm-hmm. and and he was three, four years in re- solid recovery. He was a huge leader in the Boston Bulldog Running Club, very respected, still very respected. And he had a reoccurrence last June, and he died of an opioid. And I think it was such a tremendous shock and and loss for the Boston Bulldogs. So I was about to embark on writing my second book, which is about a little boy and his dad. And so I reached out to his parents and mm-hmm. his brother and sister and collaborated with them to say, let's tell Sean's story through Papa Pack a Kind-Hearted Warrior. Warrior mm-hmm. is a really important concept in the Boston Bulldog Running Club. And it's on their shirts. you will see I've included a photo of Sean and coach and you'll see that that that. is
2: great
0: is there anything uh you'd like to know from me
1: that's a good question (laughs) what kind of interests you in um doing a
0: a podcast on on this topic? I guess, well, it was a combination of things. And the combination is I've been a lot, I've been thinking a lot about COVID mm-hmm. and how people are responding to COVID. And I'm also a vacuum filler and I gravitate where the energy isn't. And to me, so much of the COVID energy is on the emergent treatment of COVID in the ICU, the emergency department, where it's just so obvious to me that most of the activity is at home and people are dealing with it at home. And I realize also that there's so much that is just still happening, that life has gone on. And so frankly, I'm sitting there with Mike and he's my hearing aid guy. He told me that you had written this book. And I was thinking that the challenges with addiction have not gone away, if not even more acute, because people are not connecting and loneliness and disconnection seem Lethal to addiction, there the antithesis, and so it made me think. Okay, so then it all just—I I wanted to read your book. I—I I missed you and wanted to talk to you. <laughs> the topic seemed righteous, so
1: yeah. I'll, I'll Whatever. It's that. a great
0: thing about this uh, medium is that and that I'm health hats and what I say about it is that I know a little bit about a lot of healthcare and not a lot about that much and and so I can go anywhere I want and so whatever interests me there I go <laughs> and so one of the
1: things I love about you
0: <laughs> thank you all right thank you very much this is wonderful I look forward to seeing you and thank you so much for taking the time
1: Oh, thank you so much for reaching
0: out. Some people pull hand over hand for strands of hope and opportunity in the quicksand of tragedy. The entire family strains to recover from the grief of addiction. I appreciate Sarah Cloud's person first approach. People are expert in their own lives. Expert means they know much, but experts still need help connecting dots, creating and executing plans, facing pain and loving self. Check out Sarah's series about Mama and Papa Paca, links in the show notes. Onward. See the show notes, previous podcasts and other resources through my website www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.